right hello and welcome you're listening to people not war a podcast brought to you by campaign against arms trade my name is sienna and i'll be your host for another episode join us as we catch up with campaigners activists community organizers and all-round inspirational people working to end the international arms trade and other intersecting issues Throughout the series, we'll be drawing links between the arms trade and issues as broad as border controls and policing, colonialism, the crisis in Yemen, the militarization of education, climate justice, to name just a few, with the hopes of showing that all these struggles are interconnected. So today I am joined by the wonderful Sham Murad. Welcome, Sham. Hi there. Hey. Uh, We're going to ask you how you're doing in a second, but let's kind of give you um, a full biog so we get a little bit of a sense of who you are. So Sham hails from Birmingham via Baghdad. She is a master's in law graduate and the co-founder of Left Wing Book Club and activist collective A is for Activism. The book club explores the works of black and brown revolutionaries who have set the blueprint for our liberation and also delivers survival programs in Birmingham City as well as in California. So a very warm welcome to Sham. Um, so let's dive in. Like, first and foremost, just how are you doing? We're asking every guest that just to begin with. How are you doing today, Sham? How are you surviving? I'm very well. Birmingham still in tier three. Very wonderful news. Well, you know, I'm um, in the Midlands too. So. <laughs> <laughs> so the struggle we is real for us. Well, we don't move actually, that's the problem. But have you been managing to kind of keep your spirits up if you have been kind of at this time? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it's vital to stay as high as possible during I guess such dark times and fortunately for me I have two wonderful young nephews who embody what it means to live every single day so I have been fine thanks how have you guys been campaign against arms trade been yeah I mean you know uh we have definitely managed to adapt as an organization I would say that and I think we're doing as well as we can considering the circumstances so I think you know we're, we're doing okay and me personally I think I'm doing okay same as you it's kind of the ups and downs you know of of the situation but I think it's just great to be able to still find ways to like innovate um connect with with people connect with activists cam- other campaigners and still keep kind of doing our work even if we have to adapt how we do it basically so thank you for asking um and also i know that you're a bookworm so what are you reading at the moment well this month's read for ace for activism is actually claudia jones's beyond containment i love claudia jones Uh, so much i love claudia jones it's been such a fun thing it's been such a fun book to read and especially considering you know we're living in probably the most incompetent and most corrupt british government we've seen in decades i i I, th- I think that's a fair assessment to say, e- especially in our lifetimes. Yeah. So reading her internationalism and the way she challenged the UK governments in her time and seeing what we're faced with now, it's, it's been an inspiring read, the least to say. Definitely. She's like one of my, you know, my faves, my, my auntie Claudia. We love her. So <laughs> I love, we love to see it. Um, so actually, this is a, a really useful segue into kind of let's let's just, you know, start from the beginning. You know, you're a very mm-hmm. passionate person. And that's one of the things that I most love about you. So although I've given a bit of a bio, but just briefly tell us a little bit about who you are and why you do what you do. What is driving this passion and this outspoken, outspoken campaigning that you are definitely known for? Well, as you so kindly put it, I'm the co-founder of Ace for Activism Marxist Book Club. Um, I work in Safeguarding currently. And I guess it's a bit difficult to explain because my drive and my outspokenness isn't defined by one singular thing. I'd say it's... um, I'd say the best way to explain it is I'm truly driven and my outspokenness is mainly 
on how much I live for the people, I guess. And Fred Hampton has a really cool um, speech about how you have to live for the people, how you have to die for the people, etc. And, you know, there's so many injustices in the world, and I know we're going to speak on later about it um, during this episode. Um, Yet there's so many people suffering, and I'm just inspired by the human ability to be resilient against it all, to resist against all these barbaric natures of our different oppressions and different oppressors, etc. And as, as an Iraqi who faced Britain on its imperialist front within the war and then its immigration process, etc. It's very easy to personalise and empathise with a lot of people's personal experiences as well. So I guess that's the best way to explain it. Yeah, I think that's that's really powerful. And actually, we were chatting with, um, you know, one of our episodes with Amina Atik, who, um, if you recall, our, our Yemeni um, scouser friends and poet mm-hmm. and writer. She's incredible. And just talking about this idea of, like, we were talking about the idea of the personal being political, but also having that balance of, like, understanding that, um, sometimes it's not personal it's not about you but it is about it is about the people it is about the wider context mm-hmm. so that balance but when we think about drive I agree you know there's this there's always this personal stuff driving it particularly when you're you're talking about issues that are so close to home um, and we you know A is for activism is definitely one of my like just favorite collectives favorite book clubs you're more than just a book club and I think that's what is like super powerful so just tell us a bit more about kind of how the collective the club came to be and again what what is it really all about and why do you do the work that you do Honestly, firstly, it's, we're eternally indebted to anyone who has such nice things to say about us. So thank you for that. And, you know, as we started as a, of course, a Marxist reading group and our, we had two big objectives. One was to raise the class consciousness of our people in Birmingham and two, to provide an alternative to what we are already being taught in school. So I know recently you must have heard how the British government has banned any anti-capitalist material being taught in school. And anti-capitalist material is basically anti-racist material, anti-colonialist material, etc. So when you're making these reading materials illegal in schools, you're essentially making our experiences illegal as well on top of it. So in 2018, we started out as making sure we provide a alternative or a resistance to that kind of education and you know we've transformed ourselves since then into a community hub we've been so grateful that people believe in our vision and have you know donated their money to us that we've been able to do stuff within our community in Birmingham and our faction in California as well with um undocumented immigrants in California and with houseless people in Birmingham etc so you know we're trying we're evolving we're growing and hopefully there's more work to be done no, I think your work, you know, I'm sure that people have said this to you before, but it's definitely in the spirit of the Panthers, you know, doing that, the the reading, the learning, the 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 drives, you know, all of that. So, you know, I've, I've obviously been part of your book club as well. And I just think it's incredible what a collective of people can do, um, really rooted in, in, in basically understanding the theory and then putting it into practice. I think that mm-hmm. your the book club is a good example of that. And so that we, you've spoken about is community and obviously you know you are part of our community our cat community um sham we're really happy, happy to have you there and you actually um recently took part in our first reading group series um the arms trade uh, 101 and intersecting issues and you kind of run a session and we're on our panel and, and you know um I, you know i found that a really really powerful experience um and he- hearing everything that you had to say um and i think again because you know the situation in yemen and, and the situation around saudi are, are quite key to our campaigning workers campaign against arms trade obviously 
there's lots of issues that are key to what we do, but that's a particular kind of um, central focus, shall we say, especially because of our court case. Um, and although I know you're not um, Saudi and you're not from Yemen, but you are someone who has done a lot of kind of reading around the issue uh -huh. and, and certainly kind of um, talking around the issue. And so maybe just for those who are new to it, again, it's complicated, um, but are you able to give a bit of a summary from what your perspective, some of the key things that is worth noting, um, especially for those for those who might want to actually start learning more about the situation and, get, and taking taking action in some way, shape or form in the future? Yeah, absolutely. So the quickest of summaries I can give is there was originally a mostly indigenous northern movement from a group called the Houthis who were fighting against Yemen's leader at the time, um, Salah, and saying that Basically, their needs weren't being met. You know, neoliberalism was strife. Unemployment was strife. The welfare system was corrupt, etc. People weren't being taken care of. So um, they fought against the presidency. However, Saudi Arabia at the time, you know, has close relations with Salah and has its claws really deeply entrenched within the Middle East in order to protect its geopolitical needs or in order to protect its imperialist needs, etc. It all goes on. And because Saudi Arabia and Yemen are so close in its proximity, what happens in Yemen, you know, Saudi Arabia couldn't afford a Yemeni uprising that removed their government and the idea of a democracy existing so close to their home. So we see in the example of Bahrain where they funded the Bahraini leaders to completely obliterate the resistance and we're seeing the same effect that Saudi Arabia is doing now in Yemen because they don't want the idea of d democracy existing in the Middle East because it threatens their actual monarchy. So one of the things that Saudi Arabia cannot do right now is put ground troops on the on the ground of Yemen. So most for the most part, their attempt to actually win the war has been from the air. And its bombing campaign, which has resulted in just not a horrifying loss to Yemen's infrastructure, but also a large loss of civilian deaths. It's one of what actually currently the largest humanitarian crisis, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And one of the things I actually touched upon during the reading group um, is that I'm always reluctant to call it a humanitarian crisis because it kind of removes the accountability that Saudi Arabia and Britain has in it because... You know, a humanitarian crisis can be an earthquake, it can be a tsunami, it can be these natural disasters, whereas what we're seeing in Yemen is 100% inflicted by Saudi Arabia and the UK and the US, etc., and Western powers. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And language matters. Again, it's another episode where we're emphasising the fact that the way we speak about things matters. When we spoke to... Um, um, Adaronke, who when you listen to the episode, you'll, you'll find out about her. She was talking about the way we talk about migrants, right? And and the fact mm -hmm. that and, and people who seek asylum, we should be saying people who seek asylum, not asylum seekers. Um, um, uh, Amina was kind of saying something similar about language. And so in this context as well, humanitarian crisis, the examples you've given, those are things that are natural disasters. It's, it's basically out of people's hands, apart from the fact that we could talk all day about climate uh, yeah, this as well. Climate like, racism, absolutely. Yeah, the fact that humans have definitely got a hand in that too. But yeah, I think that's really important. And just thinking about, I suppose the 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 way that you're, um, I suppose, closely keeping an eye on the situation in Yemen. I, I know that actually, AIDS for activism did a whole drive um, and kind of like fundraising and stuff mm -hmm. around, kind of getting stuff on the ground. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? The way you were able to kind of support people on the ground. Yeah. So 
you know, again, we're very fortunate that people believe in our vision and pe- people trust us when it comes to fundraising, etc. So we managed to raise around £12,000 to provide, yeah, COVID assistance for um, the people who live in villages in Yemen in particular. And, you know, again, what people aren't really aware of when it comes to Yemen is that millions of people are malnourished, millions and millions of people are on a currently starving right now and suffering etc so you know we try to provide a little bit of sustenance or aid in response to that and many many people are doing that right now as well but again there's only so much you can do when Saudi Arabia is bombing the infrastructure of Yemen at this time exactly and and deliberately targeting things like hospitals actually mm-hmm. so that's all very deliberate and so actually you you know you're, you're talking about western powers and and western intervention again that's something important to note that underpins this conversation you're often talking talking about um, whether it's online or offline um, racism and and colonialism um, and for and the fact that for those who maybe until now um, haven't or they haven't you know they've had the privilege of not understanding an issue like the arms trade in that context uh, knowing that it's underpinned by racism colonialism let's just talk a bit about that thinking about um you know the saudi regime for example but how that is very much um supported by a western power like the uk like mm-hmm. the usa let's talk a little bit let's dig into that a little bit what do we even mean by you this know, idea of western intervention yeah originally you, I always say this whenever I'm invited by um, cats to speak, is that the UK's relationship with Saudi Arabia is umbilical. And that's how closely entrenched that they are. You know, from its very inception, the the monarchy within Saudi Arabia was implemented by the UK. The, so the UK goes far in assuring that it protects Saudi Arabia's complete disregard for the democratic po- process and people's liberties because they are... They, they get their own needs funneled by it, etc. So one of the ways that Britain does this is provide um, a number of weapons such as BAE systems, major defense, Raytheons, etc. All silent weapons in contracts with Saudi Arabia to not only give them these weapons, however, but to also teach Saudi Arabia how to effectively use these deadly weapons and kill more people. And most notably in Yemen, um, BAE systems were had manufactured the typhoon and tornado aircraft which Saudi Arabia has been using largely in its wars etc so what does that mean well as you said when Saudi Arabia deliberately targets sectors of Yemen's infrastructure that was quintessential for its survival then so does the UK when Saudi Arabia targets hospitals despite having the coordinations for the hospitals and knowing attacking hospitals is a breach of humanitarian law then so does the United Kingdom so every breach of laws that Saudi Arabia is complicit in, and so is the UK. And then when we look at the wider contents of racism and colonialism and the arms trade, like the American context, for example, we see that frequently militarized police that have access to bullets and guns and gas, etc., and the context of the ways they use them. You know, we don't see them use these weapons against the Proud Boys, against the white supremacists who march the streets or take, you know, um, whole states... Um, state buildings etc they don't use it in these times right we only see it when we see how the criminalizations of black people and blackness has been in effect playing in the hand against the militarized police and colonialism colonialism's role in slavery and making it profitable then making prisons a profitable business it goes hands in hands and then as um you mentioned 
people who seek asylum, etc. And Theresa May's hostile environments and the militarization of our borders and its impact on black people and other people of colour as society makes use of the good and the bad migrants, etc. And people fleeing these um, conflicts that the UK plays a huge hand in creating etc to come here and face raids and detention centers we've obviously learned that the use of stronger borders at this time doesn't act as a deterrent they just make movements to the uk more treacherous so the arms trade and its role in profiting from racism and colonialism has been completely quintessential and it goes hand in hand absolutely absolutely And so you mentioned the Proud Boys, and so we are obviously talking about um, the USA, even though, of course, we have our mm-hmm. own equivalents here. Um, and, you know, just thinking back, actually, to the reading groups, um, this is actually kind of, you know, off the back of a question you did actually um, ask your group um, when we were having our smaller conversations. And I guess thinking about the UK um, and, you know, I'd be talking about UK all day about how this country is not innocent. It's actually the, the proud exporter of racism. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. the parent exporter. So let us let us hold that and let it be known kind of thing. So, but, you know, we, you know, Know, it's the proud export of racism mm-hmm. across the world including to places like the usa um, and i know that you are someone who um yeah you don't really mess with like representation politics like that kind of thing i think you demand more and i think that's uh, really important i think so you have been um, quite critical for example of like the obama administration i think mm-hmm. that's a useful maybe opposite well seeming opposite to to look at when we think about maybe like what's going on with trump for example and i suppose what you know how different was the us's relationship with saudi and yemen under like an obama administration versus trump's for example i don't know if you kind of know much about that or can speak to that very much um and do you think that there would have been anything different if we had something more socialist like a corbyn government here and maybe like a, a sanders government over there yeah no absolutely so i'll start with the first question and it's important that you mention the role of representative um representative politics etc and diversity in parliaments or diversity in congress etc and whether that really has an effect on people in the global south or um etc and in my opinion to be honest there was absolutely no difference at all between the obama administration and between the trump's administration etc so you know although trump was far more forward in his support for saudi arabia's onslaught on the yemeni people both presidencies were complicit. So, you know, a lot of people who like to paint Obama in a very green light, in a peaceful brush, etc., they always go on to mention that the fact of his final days of his presidencies, he stopped some of the more dangerous weapons being sold to, um, to Saudi Arabia to use against the Yemeni people. As if, you know, his time as being the mass drone dropper in chief etc didn't exist but i digress so yeah he had halted some arms to saudi arabia now some may find this impressive but however obama agreed to continue fueling saudi arabia's jets from the sky so if they if the jets were concerned about you know running out of fuel they can just go to the america's planes get that fuel then continue dropping bombs onto the Yemeni people. So he is undeniably complicit within this. And just because you've halted the sales of the more dangerous bombs and the more dangerous weapons, you're still allowing certain weapons to still be sold, etc. And as for Trump, 
Like, we know that Trump is categorically a fascist. And in, in every way, in every way, like, he is an outspoken, open, in-your-face fascist. So he is also complicit. He continued to... As soon as he came into presidency, he stopped Obama's ban, to be fair. And it's also not worth noting that Trump's first international visit during his presidency and his first international dealings was with Saudi Arabia, where he agreed to sell over... Um, he, he agreed to give over $300 billion to be spent in 10 years to help Saudi Arabia with its, you know, quote-unquote defence capabilities, as if it needs its help. So they're both just as complicit and... You know, Biden is pro-Warhawk, Camilla is pro-Warhawk. So unless they come into presidency and completely stop sales, um, stop the sales of arms to Saudi Arabia, any attempt that they do with Saudi Arabia makes them just as complicit. And, you know, it's kind of sad to go off onto that to then think about our current leadership right now, Boris Johnson, and who do we have as Labour leader, Keir Starmer, who is absolutely incompetent in my opinion. And when I think of a Corbyn leadership, you know, I think he would have absolutely had a massive difference to what we have right now. You know, first of all, Corbyn wouldn't have members like Jeremy Hunt serving his cabinet who actually went on to, and I mentioned this in the reading session, went on to write an article about how, you know, he can't stop the, he can't halt sales to Saudi Arabia because it can sever important relationships. As if, these important relationships matter more than the lives of Yemeni people, but whatever. But Corbyn has a really interesting quote that he said during his time as um, campaigning for leadership, where he said, Labour will stop arms to Saudi Arabia for use in Yemen and work to end war there, not actively support it as the Conservative government has done. Labour's new internationalism means we will create a peace and conflict prevention fund and invest an extra £400 million um, to expand our diplomatic capacity and increase the oversight of arms exports to ensure that we're not fueling conflicts as in in Yemen and in Israel and the Palestinian territories. So that was probably another reason why we didn't end up having him as <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, 100%. Like, people are like, no. Britain is absolutely bloodthirsty, 100%. Um, so yeah, there would have been such a massive difference. Not, not, to just ourselves and the improvement of our welfare system here and, you know, the lives of British people being far better. You know, what what, what did he say three months after the election? Oh, he didn't think it would just take three months to prove him right, etc. You know, the handling of COVID would have been better. Thousands of people wouldn't have died here because of COVID under Corbyn. Thousands of Yemenis won't be butchered right now because of um if we had a Corbyn leadership, you know, it's very frustrating to think about it because we really, in Britain, had the choice. Yeah, we had the choice between a true, peaceful, socialist government that will lead us forward and we chose this clown, as best to put it, as best to put it, so... Yeah, no, I, I hear the frustration. I'm sure there's a lot of people that would, would share those frustrations. A lot of these things are very much, though, um, are, us and our what-ifs, you, you know, sometimes you, you don't know, and actually people end up maybe not being able to completely live up to their, to their promises. But yeah, I, def, I definitely agree that, you know, it is, we, it is a shame that we weren't able to maybe see what could have been, um, particularly when it comes mm-hmm. to kind of international policy, before we even get started on kind of domestic policy.
you know, I've heard you before kind of like um, express your solidarity with Yemeni people coming from the perspective of someone who is Iraqi. And so someone who does come from a country that knows intimately what UK involvement, um, the kind of violence of UK involvement, you've started to touch on that slightly. Um, so can you just speak maybe more generally though, about this idea of, of connecting the dots and kind of connecting um, our struggles, um, again, so that we don't operate in silos. And I think I'm asking everyone this question because particularly with something like the arms trade, it feels like understandably this humongous thing to get your head around. And it feels very, very complicated and there's many moving parts and it's something that affects the whole world. And so you often just feel like you can't really make it move from this abstract to something that yeah. makes sense on the ground. So how is it that people can, but I do believe through kind of connecting the dots and seeing how it's present in our everyday lives and our other struggles, it's present in the fact that, you know, some of us experience racism, it's present in this, it's present mm -hmm. in that, right? Um, yeah, just what are your thoughts on this kind of connecting the dots and the ways that we can make something so abstract feel less abstract? The most important parallel that I'll draw, not just with Yemen and with Iraq, but, you know, with the people of Chile, with the people of Peru that are uprising right now, with the people people of Haiti that are uprising right now, you know, we're seeing it happen everywhere, is neoliberalism. And for those who are unaware of what neoliberalism is, it's defined as a theory that society should be formed by the free market. Neoliberalism is basically the ideology that governments should be small and big businesses should be big. That governments should allow businesses to have free reign and the private sector to not pay their, you know, correct contributions in tax and not to be regulated by law and how it fulfills its businesses and services such as healthcare and education and should be left to the private sector. Now, again, neoliberals tend to fulfill their vision by cutting government services like benefits, like pensions, like um, women's shelters and also goes further to allow businesses to... Um, allows deregulating businesses by, you know, loosening workers' rights, loosening environmental laws and privatising government assets such as water, the trains, gas, health, etc., which makes the government some money in the short run and has a disastrous effect in the long run um, because these things become essentially unaffordable and again we see it in Yemen we see it in Iraq we see it in Chile we see it in Haiti we see it everywhere so how does this play an effect in Yemen and Iraq so we see the rampant increase of poverty in both countries we have seen massive youth unemployment a rise in illiteracy amongst the youth we have seen completely inadequate medical care and a welfare system that does not work so when you intertwine neoliberalism and war, you see the results it hands out. And it's no secret that it has created many politicians, you know, exuberant amounts of wealth because the politicians, because of politicians ties to these companies. So when you look at the example of Dick Cheney, the vice president to the Bush um, juniors regime, his wealth went through the roof. It completely went through the roof. During the occupation of Iraq, his shares in Halliburton's made billions and billions of dollars upon bodies of dead Iraqis. And, you know, the UK government uses this blueprint for chaos and war to ensure that it makes billions and billions worth more of profit. So, you know, you can use this example with G4S, a security company that is working to militarise our borders. You can use this example in our corrupt government right now, you know, instead of giving the track and trace app to the NHS, it gave the contracts to their friends and their family members. 
who are making billions on a system that is not working for us. So I always, always like to go back to neoliberalism because I describe it as uber capitalism. And it's the fault of no matter what issue you look at, in my opinion, you will find that neoliberalism and uber capitalism and capitalism itself is at the heart of it. Where there is profit to be made off our oppressions and off our lives, they will do it. Yeah, well, that's extremely thorough um, in in kind of overviewing, particularly like neoliberalism. And I think, you know, it kind of already answers what my next question, but I suppose... um, you know, how, how have you gone about, though, making these kind of making sure that you've got a very deep, holistic understanding of these things, um, because they are important in our in our in our fights if we're going to actually succeed and have justice. But I know you're someone who reads a lot, for example, but um, mm-hmm. but I know a lot of people are always like, Sham, how do you know so much? Like, how do you have the time to, like, educate yourself and all this kind of stuff? And I suppose, you know, I think it's important understanding that education of is a lifelong thing. We have lived experience. And even when we don't have lived experience of things, you have to be an active you have to be an active student of the world, basically. Mm-hmm, and I, I see you as someone who's very much an active student of the world. But like, how have you kind of gone about making sure that you you do have these deep, holistic understanding of these issues? Just as much as I run the book club, I learn just as much as every member in the book club. You know, as you said, it's important to be an active student continuously throughout your life. There are so many issues right now and because of social media we're a bit more lucky in the way that it's made us aware of so much more things happening in the world and it's made us be able to get our voices out a bit more etc but as I mentioned at the start of the discussion you know being an Iraqi and um, seeing what we've seen etc has made it a bit more and personalize a lot of these things so it makes it just as important to ensure that you know we do have that deep holistic understanding and we do ensure that we continuously learn and you know I mentioned this before in one of our discussions our oppressors have contracts with each other you know they are making billions off one another so this the same way G4S makes billions in its um militarizing borders etc it ensures that it works with Israel in building further Palestinian settlements and building the wall across um, Palestinian land, etc., and makes billions doing so. So, you know, as much as G4S profit- profits from um, the issues of migrants and people who seek asylum and refugees, etc., it can also profit in oppressing Palestinian people. And then it also can profit in oppressing black people in the US by selling the US certain, you know, um, tear gas and riot gear, etc. Rubber bullets, all that. Yeah, exactly. So the same way that our oppressors create these contracts within another to ensure that it keeps us down, it's just as important for us to learn about every single struggle that there is. Because one of the reasons why I was happy that you asked me um, who we're currently reading and that being Claudia Jones, is because Claudia Jones puts such an emphasis onto um, internationalism. And Claudia Jones understands that only a political movement with mutual struggles and an active solidarity of laboring laboring people on a world scale organized with that Marxist communist perspective would be decisive in helping change the world for a better good. And that that can only be our response, response to it. Only a class struggle 
of all of us together is an engine that will be responsible for historical change that we need right now. Absolutely, absolutely. I always think of Claudia Jones. I think of Angela Davis when I think about this idea of intersexy struggles. Have you ever read, have you managed to read Freedom as a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis yet? Yeah, that was our first book at Ace for Activism. I mean... For an important reason as well. Any conversation that I can have, even if we're talking about paint, I'll still throw that book in somehow. Mm. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. It is small, it is powerful, it's digestible, and you know, you can dip in and out, right? You can just read one speech mm. or just read one essay, or whatever. And for me, I always say to people, read that book, because I would always say that, you know, I think I've spent many years kind of learning to have this deep understanding of intersectionality of the self, which is important because you need to understand that you're never just walking as a black person or as a woman mm-hmm. or as a this or as a that. There's many things going on at the same time. Um, but also, you know, reading that book many years ago now just really reframed things for me in my mind about like this notion of the intersectionality of struggle. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's when you're I think that's when you're leveling up your thinking because you're starting to connect these dots even you know and I'm thinking about uh, you strike me as someone who's been quite well traveled because every time I'm seeing your socials when you're talking about something you've got a picture <laughs> of a comrade in the states a comrade somewhere everywhere in this Absolutely. world <laughs> so like just obviously we can't really move so freely at the moment but like tell us a little bit about I don't know if you have been like maybe yeah tell us a bit about your travels I suppose and how maybe that has informed some of the work you do and how you've been able to connect with people across the world kind of doing similar work and maintain that internationalism no, absolutely. It's interesting because I recently had a discussion with one of my friends about this and she says, oh, for someone who lives in Europe, you don't really travel to Europe a lot. And for me, there's a reason for this. Like, I don't want my, um, you know, my solidarity links to be in Europe. You know, I want it to be in the global south. And it's why I consistently, you know, travel across the global south. So when I went, when I traveled to China, I was able to work with um, many communists there and build those links there. When I um, two years ago, I was lucky enough to live in New York for a little short period. And I built with, you know, I made some comrades with people who are part of the Party for Socialism and Liberation Liberation in the US, the PSR, who does incredible work. So like, if you look at what they do in um, Philadelphia, for example, they have something called the Philly Liberation Center, where it's essentially the blueprint for what I would love AIDS for activism to become, where they're a proper community hub and they have that space in doing so. What, was the PS- what did PSR I, stand for again? Chan, I'm taking the notes. Party for Socialism and Liberation. Fantastic, thank you. Yeah, so again, like there are, they also understand that only with a communist perspective and a Marxist perspective and a socialist perspective can we move forward um, in attaining our freedoms. And yeah, so I got to work with them, a lot of my comrades there. And you know, I, they're so on job there. They're so on job there throughout the US. Just recently, my comrades in Denver, Colorado were arrested by um, the police yeah, for protesting against the killing of Elijah McClain by the Aurora Police Department. And now, you know, they're facing individually, uh, um, my comrade Joel and a couple of his comrades are facing like 23, 24 charges each against them of kidnapping and ludicrous charges because they surrounded the police department and begged them not to kill any more black people. So it's ludicrous. Like what they do is absolutely asinine is the best way I can describe it. But yeah, I have found that building these relationships, building these movements, you know, when I was in Brazil, I got very lucky to stumble across them. It was during the um, elections at the time in 2016. I got lucky enough to stumble across the 
communist candidate. And then these things are so soulful for me because it just so happened that I was at a party and the communist candidate was there and I got to connect with him and I got to connect with his friends, etc. And I got to learn about, you know, just how deeply racist Brazil is as a society because, again, the black people there suffer the most. I got to learn about... Yeah. I was in Brazil, God, only like last summer, to be honest, but you know how everything feels like 10,000 mm-hmm. years ago. And yeah, that was absolutely hyper-visible, that experience, definitely. Absolutely. And I got to learn... Um, and this was before the fascist coup as well in Brazil. So again, and right now, as we speak, there's massive protests taking place across Rio de Janeiro and across several um, Brazilian cities against police violence because they beat up a young black kid to death. So, and I only know of these things because I have friends there and I have comrades there. The um, media won't show you it in detail. If- ab- absolutely not. Absolutely not. So just as just as important as it is to learn about these struggles, there's nothing more important than, you know building these solidarity links and learning from first-hand experience from people who are facing these struggles as well. Absolutely. You know, and one thing that you always say, which um, I don't know why it's one of my favourite things that you say, because it's, it's kind of sad, but you always talk about how, like, all your heroes are dead. And also just a shout-out to our, yeah. comrade, our comrade Maradona, who passed oh, away just, like, absolutely. two days ago. I saw that you, your heart was broken. Mine was too. Um, but, you know, and I think that is something to ponder on, though, about the fact that, mm-hmm. I mean... Tell us more about what you mean by that, though. Literally, yeah, you know, they have died. But yeah. like, what do you, what do you, re- I feel there's something deeper going on there. Is it kind of a commentary on the fact that you don't feel that maybe there are people in this generation that are able to, like, carry the baton of our elders? Or, like, yeah, can we unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I, yeah, so when I do consistently say, oh, my heroes are dead, I, it is, it, it's more sort of a outline of the fact that my heroes have been killed by the CIA and, you know, all these, like, new colonialists, etc. But, of course, you know, I use it in the um, example of Ali, in the um, example of, um, just as you mentioned, to make sure that, you know, we understand that there's still this pivotal need to move that drive forward. Prior to June this year, I would have absolutely agreed saying that, you know, our generation really doesn't care and it can't afford to care because, you know, capitalism is so ingrained in our minds. All we're trying to do is, all a lot of people are trying to do is survive. But I think after George Floyd, there has been this deep awakening in people, especially in the UK. After Grenfell, there's been, and, you know, the complete lack of competency in dealing with Grenfell, there has been this deep awakening within people and you know whereas Ali and Rodano have just died we see the likes of Marcus Rashford coming into play and taking this position you know feeding our kids that live in poverty and you know I I understand that Marcus Rashford isn't a Marxist Leninist etc but the fact that he's doing that is incredible that is absolutely my that is absolutely heroic and he is absolutely one of my idols right now And, you know, seeing all these grassroots organisations that are continuously popping up and doing the work within our communities and seeing the ways that they join together, etc. I think recently there has been a change to to what we have right now. And there has been a deep, again, political awakening within people where people are tired. Like, even, again, before 
June, as of this year, you know, people came to our meetings, people were interested, etc. But I think there was an exponential rise after um, what happened to George Floyd. And when people, you know, the light bulb was switching on, they're like, hold on. What's happening here? Why is this happening? How is this connected to this, etc.? And, you know, people have trusted us enough to come and play a part into that. I feel that. And, like, I, you know, for me, just, yeah, to make it very clear, I'm very much a person that's always, like, the one thing that, like, minimises my cynicism, um, even though, yeah, minimises my cynicism and, like, scepticism is the fact that I'm always, like, do you know what, though? Real talk, young people are the ones that like lead the charge for change. And I think that's in every generation, right? And if, you know, this year is a particular example, like we've seen the absolutely heroic effort of young people, especially in like Nigeria, for example, you know, like uh-huh. true comrades, very much all of that is a part of kind of a Black Lives moment and Black Lives Matter moment, sorry. We've obviously seen the stuff that's going on in the UK. It's, it's been young people, you know, who have been organizing absolutely. the marches. leading on to kind of our next um, discussion actually and already like we're coming towards the end of our of our chat you know but um just think about the role that social media plays so you are someone who's very active on social media actually and I think you use it in a, a really powerful way you're pretty much there daily like calling everyone to account um, <laughs> and obviously AIDS for activism is also very effective on social media um and social media I do think has played a really key role in this kind of like you know just information sharing raising awareness weirdly like Instagram's become I do think there's always you know I'm quite a social media geek um in the sense of like just you know doing what 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 is it for what do people use them for and you know I would always say that Twitter prior to maybe like recently was always that place you go for like political stuff and like news and all that and Instagram is a bit more kind of I think light work to be honest but now Instagram it's your library as well for like those you know graphics that tell you about Yemen that tell you about Black Lives Matter that tell you about Chile that tell you about everything going on um and of course there's pros and cons but I suppose because you're someone who's very active on social media what role do you think it can play in our activism especially as we have to do so much digitally for the foreseeable how can people find a way to be effective um offline um as well so how can people basically find a way to make sure sorry that they're being effective online and it translates to kind of uh, offline meaningful action even if we can't necessarily take to the streets or do what we used to do so how basically that what's that connection between doing stuff online and making sure it translates in an offline world does that make sense yeah so to start off with the first question i think it's important that you know it's important to not I wouldn't particularly say be cynical, but be wary of all the information you come across. So I think, you know, right now the CIA has seen this like trend of infographics working. I think it's important to take everything, learn as much as you can, but also question what you're learning. Question who the sources are. Question who is saying this, you know. Are my sources white academics or are my sources from lived experiences of black and brown people, etc.? I think that's very important. I think when it comes to, I guess, um, trying to do the work online, it's just platforming as much as possible, voice from the communities that you're concerned about, etc. And when it comes to taking that work offline, you know, if you can't take to the streets and you can't consistently petition on the streets, etc., you support the organisations who can. If you have a little bit of money to donate, you put that in the pockets of grassroots organisations that work as your food banks, that work as your um, protecting homeless people in the UK, that work and protecting people who seek asylum, etc. And 
whatnot. And again, most importantly, I understand that there's a lot of like lethargic nature that goes for a while. But one of the very important things that my comrade in um, the US Denver said, Joel, is that revolutionary optimism is a discipline. We have to consistently practice it, consistently do the work to ensure that we don't allow ourselves to, you know, lose that optimism. We don't allow ourselves to become um, not disciplined enough to continuously do the work, etc. We continuously work on ensuring that we do what we need to. And it's one of my favourite quotes that I've ever heard. And I'm really happy that it came from my friend. And he said it to me at such a time when, you know, Corbyn had just lost and Boris Johnson lost by, um, won by a landslide, sorry. And it was at a time where a lot of the members in our, um, in AS for Activism were feeling like crap. What more is there now? And I was like, wow. And in my head, I was thinking the best people for them to hear from is some like, you know, people who had fascists win outright. So I can only imagine like what they felt during that 2016 election myself personally I wouldn't have cared between Clinton or Trump etc but I understand that you know in the US a lot of people are feeling very upset so the quote revolutionary optimism is a discipline has been entrenched in me ever since so that's a gift. understanding that's a yeah absolutely understanding that for everyone that is interested in learning is interested in taking part is inspired by the people you know living for the people and dying for the people it's continuous work, man. Yeah, thank you for that. Cool. Um, yeah, so obviously, Sham, you know, um, social media is a resource at the end of the day. And we've talking, we've spoken a lot about books as another resource and all that kind of stuff. And it is arguable that there's so much information out there. It can feel like information overload. Um, you know, during the summer that we've just had, like so many generous people, so many black scholars, black thinkers, black creatives, black writers, black people um, in the context of Black Lives Matter, and you put out lots and lots of resources for us to learn and educate ourselves, right? Um, and people have done the reading, they've done the watching, they've done the podcast, they've done this, they've done that, and it's a bit like, okay, what I, what do I do now? And I, I think, you know, it can all feel like a bit overwhelming, I suppose, maybe just as someone who you consume a lot of information on social justice issues, um, does, it, does it ever feel like, though, that there's like an overload of information and it's, it's difficult to navigate? Um, and is, do you have any sort of advice or thoughts on how one kind of balances staying informed and staying engaged and getting involved? Um, I think it's a bit difficult for me to answer this question in particular and shout out to everyone um to every black creative and scholar who put out the free resources in the summer um a special shout out to professor Badur who was running like a six-week black radical thought course that um no I think it was eight weeks actually that I got to um be a part of and there were so much things that I learned at the time and you know the classes again she's from the U.S. so there was a huge time difference. So when I was logging into the classes, it was like midnight and it would run till about 1am, after 1am, etc. And I'd have work the next day. And then doing that on top of the active work we do at AIDS for Activism, I I don't think there's particularly a way that I know how to balance these things out because I know that I, it needs to be done, etc. I allow myself to get overwhelmed, get the burnout for a couple of days and then back to a business so I'm definitely not really good at answering this but I'd say for people who are um new to learning about this stuff or trying to find ways to stay active when it comes to learning and when it comes to doing the work just find your motivation within the people like when we think about the context of 21 year old Fred Hampton 
And Fred Hampton is one of my biggest heroes. You know, Fred Hampton was 21, leading the Chicago's chapter of the Black Panther Party, running daily um, free breakfast programs, etc. And as you when you so kindly said that our work reminds you of the Black Panther Party. It's because a lot of the things we do, we use the Black Panther Party as our blueprint, etc. And especially Fred Hampton. And, you know, he'd be giving regular classes out to people, teaching people about the woes of capitalism and race, etc. This genius at 21 years old. And, of course, you know, the CIA and the FBI killed him, etc. But thinking about someone so young being able to consistently give out so much and do so much work and he consistently said you know he lives for the people he dies for the people his you know motivation is the people so it, it becomes a bit easier when that is the case but if it's a bit harder to I guess personalize that on top of everything it's okay to take you know the self-care days the bubble bath days the breaks etc um and in these times I think it's just easy to platform the voices that are still doing the work in that moment whilst you're taking your breaks that because that's just as effective yeah no I definitely agree and whatever um because I think yeah you and I are very very similar like we're both Virgos aren't we our birthdays are very close yeah. to <laughs> we were sharing in that this year um and so even just what you were saying about basically I suppose nodding to the fact that you you do you're probably you need to do some work on the self-care thing I always say that to people mm-hmm. I'm like, I recognize it's so important and for me I always say I'm forever striving to be much better at that so whatever self-care mm-hmm. looks for you might be the bubble baths but also you know it, it might not be it might be something else entirely but um yeah I think whenever you're, you're feeling like all right I can't do any more if, if you have a way to amplify support level up the voices that can do more in that moment then mm-hmm. that is also something that absolutely needs to be done sorry just one more note again to bring it back to neoliberalism as i always do it's a bit hard to like answer questions like these because when we think about you know our current mental health services when we currently think about our youths who don't have you know um the ability to access youth centers etc and all these things have been thoroughly either underfunded or completely cut by the tory government so when we think about like you know mental health and self-care on the micro level and on the individual level when in fact we need to be thinking about it on the macro level and how states have um deregulated our welfare services etc that are responsible for taking care of us etc and then in turn makes us feel worse etc um i think it's also important to think of it on the macro effect as much as the micro Absolutely. I mean, all these things, whether you like it or not, they're political. So if we really want to get into mm-hmm. it, you know, this this idea of self-care is political. Remember, Audrey Lords, my auntie Audrey, she reminds Absolutely. us, you know, <laughs> it's an act of warfare. So, you know, it's not just about, yeah, we, we need to be very wary of it falling into the, the traps of capitalism. But anyway, that mm-hmm. is a whole other conversation, a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> Sham, it's been so wonderful chatting to you and catching up and just kind of really thinking deeply about, about mm-hmm. the world. Um, where, where can we find you and your work and kind of, is there anything that you want everyone to know that, you know, yourself or A is for activism are getting up to in the near future that we can support? Uh, so if anyone is interested in A is for activism, on Twitter, we are just A is for activism and on Instagram, we are A is for activism BC. If you want to support, I think 
the best thing to do is to start reading our January's read, which is, I guess this is the earliest like notification I'm giving of people because we still haven't put it on our pages. But for January to celebrate the anniversary of the Haitian revolution, we are studying the Black Jacobins. One of my Um, favorite books. Absolutely, (laughs) honestly, same, same. Incredible book. Honestly, I mean, I mean, when we think about like, you know, modern history, there is nothing more important than the Haitian Revolution, in my opinion. And a lot of people don't know. It showed you what, what could be like, done. Yeah. It showed you what could be done. Exactly. And also, exactly. the consequences of that, again, another conversation, another thing, but like... A whole other conversation, yeah. But the consequences of that revolution are still being felt by Haitians mm-hmm. now. The, the Today, impact, yeah. The financial cost um, mm-hmm. of, of, of disobeying Western powers is being felt right now. Exactly. Absolutely. Absolutely. So um, if you want to get involved in our readings, we're doing that. If you want to get involved in, I guess the community work, etc. We're currently hosting a Christmas drive where we're going to give presents and gifts um, to homeless people in the UK, right? Uh, in the in Birmingham in particular right now. Um, we're planning to host like a Chris- big Christmas dinner and we're also hosting a Christmas um, gifting to children of asylum seekers or um, children of people seeking asylum or children of as soon as you said that today I was like I'm gonna start doing that I was like that is incredible thank you Adirong K absolutely (laughs) and um children of refugees and immigrants and undocumented immigrants we're going to be giving gifts away so we have an Amazon list up on our website etc so that is the best way to support us in doing that or if you just want to help um fund the Christmas you know dinners etc we also have our survival program fundraiser link on our bios if you want to support that way amazing this has been wonderful a wonderful conversation um and all the episodes actually this first batch of recordings will be out um certainly ahead of of christmas so people can when mm-hmm. whenever you're listening you should still be able to to make it in time for the christmas effort that is for activism um is kind of leading Brilliant. on so folks um that is the end of yet another thought-provoking conversation tune in next time as we catch up with more inspirational comrades like sham and don't forget you can listen to episodes of people not war everywhere you get your podcasts including itunes spotify and acast and of course you can read the zine of the same name on the cat website simply visit cats.org.uk stay in touch by following us on social media you can always find us on twitter facebook and instagram and if you are enjoying our content why not consider becoming a supporter and helping us continue our work so again more information about that on our website and until the next conversation, 